1: Welcome to Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. My guest today is a man who has spent over 50 years working to bring about social justice through the elimination of poverty by promoting evidence-based policies, sometimes or quite often, in the face of opposition based on little more than political expediency. Earlier this week, Social Justice Ireland announced that its founders, Father Sean Healy and Sister Bridget Reynolds, were both retiring in the coming months. Sean has been Chief Executive of Social Justice Ireland since it was set up in 2009, and Bridget has been Company Secretary. Prior to that, both worked on social justice and public policy within the Congregation of Religious of Ireland. And I think it's fair to say that while both have worked tirelessly in their organisations, Sean Healy has been the public face of SJI. And Sean joins me today. Sean, you're very welcome. Glad to be here, mate. Sean, stepping aside, people coming to the end of a working life it's always a milestone and in your case you're talking about not just a working life but i think and i've observed it myself over the years your passion will you miss it well i don't think i'll miss the passion because that'll still be there
0: without a doubt you know i think that's that's ingrained into me it's part of myself part of who i am um and i probably see myself i'd say i have no idea at the moment like but uh, i suspect i'll be patterned around doing various things in the area of social justice, Uh, maybe other areas as well, obviously, Uh, but uh, for for in the years to come. But uh, it's it's important uh, for uh, me to and for for Bridget to 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 step out of our roles uh, within Social Justice Ireland. We have uh, for year, years wanted to sort of build the organisation up to a capacity so that it could continue after us without us. And uh, we have now reached a situation where we have a, a good five year strategic plan. We have a very good team in place. Uh, we we have. Uh, a sort of a good reputation, uh, good visibility. Um, and the 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 work we're doing is, is 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 kind of appreciated I think by a lot of people. It might be not that appreciated by some people who uh, who sort of come in the line of fire if you like uh, but uh, also we've managed to uh, sort of develop a, a research capacity uh, that ensures that uh, the organization will, Uh, be able to finance itself in the years uh, ahead.
1: Okay, and just taking you back to the the beginning of the story, so to speak, you're from Cork City, um, hurling country, I think around Black Rock. You better believe it. Thereabouts. (laughs) Tell me about your early life, about growing up there.
0: I'm from Cork. I was the eldest of eight, a family of eight. Uh, Two of them have passed on now, two of my brothers. Um, The... My father and my father was from kool in West Cork. My mother was from Ina in County Clare. Um, And interestingly enough, like when I was born, my father was unemployed. um, And uh, I was five five years of age before he got a permanent job driving a truck for CIE. And that's what he did for his life until he retired at 65. Uh, Now he lived to be over 90 and my mother, so my mother lived to be 95 Uh, So uh, they both had long lives, good genes, Um, good genes, precisely. Um, But the the hurdling was there from the beginning. Now I was a useless hurdler. God, between us and all harm, (laughs) uh, I was a terrible hurdler. But uh, what I did manage to do uh, was become some become some use uh, in in coaching and training and stuff. But at a very early level, nothing at all like what goes on these days. So. I went to school, first of all, to the Presentation Sisters, to their small school mm-hmm. in South and then to the Christian Brothers in uh, Sullivan's Quay. And I went to primary school and secondary school there and uh, graduated from there in 63 and um, did my lead insert and uh, joined the SMA that autumn, the Society of African Missions. Uh, I could hardly have missed them. Uh, we lived across the road from them. From their headquarters in Ireland, which was in Blackrock Road, and in and, and, and uh, I had been an altar server there, and I had been very influenced by some of the the clergy that uh, I had met who come back from Africa and so on, and uh, I just that was what I wanted to do, and I I, I joined the seminary, and I was uh, uh, I joined in September '63, I was ordained in Christmas '69, and I went to off uh, to Africa in. Uh, July of 1970. And I spent over a bit more than a decade there until 81.
1: In joining the priesthood, Sean, and you're you're of a generation where a a lot of people would have done, um, the kind of calling you had, was social justice part of it or was that something that evolved and developed during your time in Africa?
0: I think there was elements of it there from the beginning. When I was in the seminary in Drummondtine, outside Nurian, County Down, I spent six of my seven years in formation in there, um, in that seminary. Um, but one of the things that we did there uh, was established uh, a, a credit union within the seminary, not because of the money that was in the seminary at all. There was next to nothing there. But um, just to learn how to run it, and how the various components of a, a credit union, and I think that was suggested maybe seeds of interest in this area. Um, I suppose I subconsciously would have been affected as well by the kinds of contrasts that I would have seen uh, growing up in Cork. Um, and as I say, my, my, my father drove a truck. Um, as I, he had been unemployed when I was uh, when I was born, and. Um, the, the contrast between, we'll say, people like him, who were in the, fa- in the large majority, but also others who were uh, very well off and did well and so on. And the, the contrasts were clear enough. I don't think I had any clear idea myself of uh, social justice in those days or whatever, but I think maybe subconsciously there were concerns and interests there, and they would come to the fore later, particularly in Africa because um, I, I worked most of my time in the uh, north of Nigeria, uh, where the Boko Haram are today. In fact, a place that I was parish priest for a few years, uh, the parish priest of that place um, was kidnapped not that long ago by Boko Haram, and uh, they kept him for a number of weeks. They were looking for, a, 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 a trying to, to get ransom and so on. The way they do that stuff there but he was released after I think about five weeks or something like that so he was one of the lucky ones that five weeks kidnapped isn't being very lucky but but uh, the fact that he came out alive uh, because an awful lot of people including a lot of uh, clergy have uh, have lost their lives in that space in recent years and but in those days there was nothing of that nature it was uh, it was a a different kind of a world
1: and I'm assuming, on on the basis of what we know, that the kind of poverty you would have experienced there was pretty extreme by Western standards.
0: By Western standards, it was. But the other side of that, uh, I I worked for the Bishop's Conference for my last five years there um, across all the dioceses in the north, all the states in the north of Nigeria, uh, on on justice and development programmes. And each diocese had its own kind of person who led for the diocese on that and then i kind of coordinated it at a at a northern nigerian level and um we it, like there there was a huge amount of work being done a lot of money going in from uh, agencies like trocar here in ireland uh, and uh, do, doing trying to trying to build up people's capacity to be able to um uh, look after themselves, to be able to work, to be able to create jobs, but also to provide infrastructure. I mean, we put a huge amount of effort into, into digging wells, for example, uh, and getting people to dig wells in their villages and so on, and trying to access water, and uh, which was in short supply and I think continues, obviously, given the location. Um, but also because of the environmental changes as well, things are more difficult than they used to be. But I... I did a fair bit of work on that and, and came across very extreme poverty. And one of the things I learned was that an enormous amount of the problems that were being faced in Africa were never going to be resolved by Africans alone or by Africa alone. Because, in effect, the decision making at the highest level on the economy of the world and so on uh, was being, uh, that, that, that decision making was outside Africa. I'll give you an example of something that opened my eyes, uh, and I'm not. This is not to suggest that we should copy that, but just to make a point. Um, I, I remember working in a parish um, uh, on my own, uh, way out in the, the, the in rural northern Nigeria, uh, 1972 72 to 74, and uh, it was like a couple of thousand square miles, and there was no road there. There was only about, there was less than 20 people had a paid job and yet everybody had a role. Everybody was involved. Everybody had a piece of work to do. And You know, they had a piece of a farm to farm or food to produce or their accommodation, which was basically wood uh, mud huts and so on. Uh, these, they had to be redone and rebuilt year after year and so on, repaired and that. There was always work to be done. Um, And everybody had a position and a a place in society. And you didn't have a situation where people had no work to do. That concept was completely alien at that time. Um, uh, And I was contrasting it to the kind of unemployment situation we had at home. And uh, it would certainly strike me even more uh, forcefully when I came back to Ireland in the 1980s and we had serious very serious levels of unemployment and kind of stagnation and stagflation in the 90s where we had inflation, but we didn't actually um, have the jobs coming and so on, you know, the, all, all that sort of stuff. And raised very serious questions for me about economic models and uh, what, I was, what was going on uh, in terms of development, what was being sold uh, to African countries as real development and progress. And I think uh, nowadays uh, we we'd we have a different view, hopefully, of what uh, of uh, what the answers to the questions of what constitutes development and well-being and so on uh, would be. But I remember then I I did my masters and my PhD in, in Fordham in New York, and I the more I went in into that, the more I kind of studied social institutions and social processes. That was the key area that I I was uh, focused on, and. Uh, more and more I was asking questions about what the heck was going on here on the ground in Africa and that the, the sort of future that was being offered was a, a, an illusion. It wasn't going to emerge. And uh, the idea that in some way or other these uh, these countries were all going to develop variations on New York, which a lot of them had in mind, um, that was never going to happen, um, certainly not for the vast, vast, vast majority of people there. So the the, the models being offered... Um, were problematic they were not to the benefit of the majority and it was at that point that I suppose that I became more and more aware of the issues uh, being not just in Africa but I I did some work with uh, during my PhD time uh, with a very fine fellow from uh, Puerto Rico and another from Chile and uh, they were both in difficult spaces at the time. Chile was under uh, military rule and, uh, they, and uh, the Puerto Ricans were always under pressure from the United States. So um, well, I remember realizing that it, what I was looking at in Africa wasn't confined to Africa. The same was in South America and so on. And then it began, became clear to me really that the solutions to many of these issues were in the north of the world not in Africa, or in South America for that matter. Now, that didn't mean that people in Africa and South America and Asia didn't um, have responsibilities and a lot of work to do and a, a, a a big, big role to play. But the critical issues were they had to be able to change the perspective of the North of the world, because the North of the world had to stop thinking of the rest of the world as a kind of a place, on the one hand, that they could extract all they wished, and and then on the other side, dump all their rubbish in, basically, metaphorically and literally.
1: It is very interesting, Anne, how those ideas formed. And then you came back and yourself, I think, and Bridget Reynolds, between you, you set up... Um, Within the Conference of Religious Ireland, the Conference of Religious Ireland, Sean I'm correct, is just the the all the congreg the representative body of all the congregations. That's right. There's a hundred.
0: Th- there's 135, or there were at that time 135. And, and, and
1: within that, you were effectively uh, an an office dedicated towards pursuing social justice.
0: Yes, uh, Father Paul Byrne, an uh, oblet, he was the um, secretary general of of. Um, CMRS, as it was at the time, Conference of Major Religious Superiors, an appalling name, but anyway, uh, as Charlie Hawhey pointed out at the time. Um, the, uh, the, he, he set up, or he, when he was Secretary General, uh, they set up uh, a justice office. And the idea was to try to, first of all, kind of work with religious on justice. But very early on, uh, there, was, there were three of us there. Uh, sister Bridget Reynolds, she's Mara's sister. I had worked with her in Africa. Um, and Father Bill McKenna, Bill was a Jesuit who had worked in the College of Industrial Relations for years and years, and then he'd done some work in in Britain, and then he came back to head this office. And the three of us were there, and uh, we worked with religious in our early years, and then quite quickly in the mid '80s, uh, the religious at one of their annual conferences felt that the work we were doing should be available to everybody, like all the social analysis we were doing and stuff of that nature. So from that moment on, they they wanted us to go public, so we went public from the mid-80s on. And so, unfortunately, uh, from my perspective, neither of the others wanted to be in the media. And I I, I had no great attraction to be in the media either, but I realised very quickly clearly uh, from my own studies like you had to be in the media to communicate uh, so I I took it I took it on and I've, I, I kind of got stuck in it you, anyway. I did,
1: and, and you you you, you became a public face of it and and I, I think uh, if we roll it on a small bit to, to the, the 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 so-called Celtic tiger years and particularly mm-hmm. the early years yeah and you know after this 70s 97 election, Fianna Fáil and Progressive Democrats are in. There's this opening up of the economy. There is a bit of a tech boom. There's, some say that particularly the influence of the Progressive Democrats brought the direction of the country economically towards the right. And as well as that, you had in the Department of Finance, the Minister Charlie McCreevy, which a lot of people, people I think described him as as a, a Fianna Fáiler, or a, sorry, a, a PD in Fianna Fáil or clothes or something to that effect. In any event, and I I recall this myself, I was, wasn't was long in uh, journalism at the time, but I recall particularly he was dismissive at one stage, describing people who um, had issues around the direction of the country as being part of the poverty industry was the phrase he used. And I think it's fair to say some people certainly interpret that as being directed at the likes of yourself. Now, move that on to 2004. And um, Bertie Ahern, uh, at one stage, and I think it was that particular year, he, I think in the dial, he famously described himself as a socialist. And in relation to that, we at the time we had they still have them, but they don't; they're not to the same effect. We had this big um, pre-dial term uh, gatherings, and Fianna Fail were having theirs in Inchidani in West Cork, and there was some publicity around the fact that you were invited down to uh, to address them. Give us a bit of background to that time, Sean, and what went on there because it became a, it became a very well known uh, event
0: absolutely uh, probably. One of the moments in which I got more abuse in my life from some commentators uh, before the event, which was always interesting uh, when that happens. Uh, what actually happened it was straightforward enough. We were in the process of social uh, dialogue or social partnership at the time. Uh, we were one of the organisations recognised as a social partner in the community and voluntary pillar of social partners by government, which had been made a social partner pillar by the by Fine Gael Labour government, by John Bruton in particular, in 96,
1: 97. That was kind of bringing the community and voluntary sector into the Into the process, precisely. Yeah, yeah.
0: That was there already with employers, trade unions and farming organisations. Those three pillars. We were the fourth pillar. Years later, the environmental pillar would be added um, uh, in the mid-noughties. But anyway, staying with this, um, what happened... Uh, we had negotiated an agreement. We we used to have these big meetings. I remember being uh, in Dublin Castle uh, with a lot of the cabinet and the social partners and the various pillars, and uh, the Taoiseach was in the chair, and so on. And uh, they, I remember here reading a report afterwards, which was totally untrue, uh, that uh, the Bertie Ahern had. Given dog's abuse to Sean Healy uh, during the plenary session, given out about the stuff we were on about, uh, which actually was had no truth whatsoever in it, okay, but it was in a prominent newspaper. Uh, what was even funnier from where I was sitting was that that afternoon, that, that had taken place in the morning. And in the afternoon, Bridget Reynolds and myself were meeting with Bertie Hearn in his office, which was a series, one of a series of meetings that we had with him tracking basic uh, issues that we had raised and uh, progress that was being made on things that he claimed he was making progress on and we were maybe challenging with some evidence or whatever. And I remember um, when we went into that, um, on the way down, being invi- uh, being asked by his main uh, uh, advisor, could I come and talk to him after the, the meeting with the Taoiseach? So I said, fine, did that. And he said, well, what I want to talk to you about is the Taoiseach would be happy if you would be a keynote speaker In Inchidani at the thinking of the parliamentary party. So I said, absolutely, why not? You know, if I'm asked, invited into that type of space, I will go there. And I did that for others as well over the years, maybe not as much publicity attached to it. The reason there was huge publicity attached to it for Fianna Fáil was straight, very simple. They had got, uh, uh, they had performed badly in the European elections, they had performed badly in the local elections, and they had performed badly in i think a couple of by-elections if my memory serves me right it was the by-election that catherine uh murphy was re was elected in in north gildare, north gildare that, right, okay yeah. and uh, okay so the, the result anyway uh, was that um they had decided they were going to do a kind of a reset if you like they still had three years to run to the general election in 2007. so um i said the one condition i set on um uh, what I had to say with two conditions. One was that I was free to say what I wanted, and the second thing was that I had I was free to make it public because I didn't believe too much and and believe less even today in the sort of leaking system that goes on in the political yeah. uh, domain uh, and they selectively leak stuff, you know. So I wanted the capacity to put out after I did the presentation to the to the parliamentary party that I could put that same uh, presentation out for the. Uh, CDs, or for the media, and that they would have it, they could do whatever they like with it. Now, the only thing was, they want and that was fine, they said absolutely no problem, and they asked me not to publicise it, so I kept my mouth shut about stuff I was reading in the paper about how badly treated I was, and stuff like that, and I waited until the week before, and then they announced it, and then all hell broke loose. There were a series of commentators in prominent newspapers who thought Fiona Foil had lost its marbles completely, (laughs) and they basically dogs abuse. And I remember opening my presentation in Inchidani by saying, if I were you, I'd be wondering why is, some people have gone to such lengths to try to stop you from listening to what I'm going to say. And I thought that was kind of a fair comment on some of the abuse that I had been getting uh, in the previous week anyway. So I I did a presentation. Uh, I basically set out some of the stuff I'm talk- I've am i been talking to you about, but also like basically saying you have a great opportunity, the economy is doing very well, and so on and so on. And if you're serious about fairness, okay, uh, there are things you have to do. And I gave them five priorities. And I think in retrospect, uh, thinking back 20, almost 20, 19 years later, uh, those five priorities are very interesting. One is that, uh, the first one was that, They had made a commitment to benchmark social welfare at uh, 30% of gross average industrial earnings by 2007. They were 51 euros short of that, and Charlie McCreevy, the minister, was giving increases of 4 euro a week uh, each, each budget. So we'd be a long, long time waiting. We'd certainly not make the target in 2007. So I said, if you're serious, if you're going to make your target, which you claim you are, then you're 51 euro short I suggest you do is you pay in in the budget of 2005, you increase the welfare by 14 euro a week, the following year by 17 euro a week, and the following year again by 20 euro a week. That will give you 51 euro of an increase over three years on the basic rate, the core rate of social welfare, and you will have achieved your target by 2007. That was my first ask, which they delivered?
1: They yeah, delivered over the following three years. That was exactly what well, they
0: delivered uh, over the following three years. There was, a couple, there was four other uh, items in that series of priorities. One was social housing. They were at, uh, at the kind of close to the 8,000 a year units for social housing. And the second priority I had up there was that they should be ma- delivering 8,000 new social housing units per annum. Now, remember, this was 2004. Yeah. Okay. Now, social housing had been a big priority of social justice. Art. Well, sorry. Of at that core time, guess, it was core uh, justice, yes. and uh, we had carried it very strongly. And I, I was very strongly of the view that with the uh, resources that were available, they should be used to build the social infrastructure, things like social housing and so on. And um, they now subsequently that died completely, and now we're back with a government saying our target is 8,000 units in social housing a year and not quite making it. And we're kind of wondering why we have, in reality, maybe 140,000, 150,000 households, not individuals' households, um, without uh, appropriate accommodation today. If we had continued at the time uh, with those 8,000 units a year, we'd be clear of all of that today. And, by the way, I would argue very strongly, and argued at the time, through the the time of the Troika and the bailout and so on, we should have continued with that because that would have done two things. It would have kept um, the jobs going, providing a core infrastructure like social housing. And at the same time, uh, it would have made sure that uh, we didn't have all this breakdown of capacity and skills that happened because all of these things got got closed down at the time. Now, in a society that was becoming wealthy as it was at the time, um, it, I would have argued very strongly that one of our priorities should have been to ensure that we protected the vulnerable, that uh, poverty was, the elimination of poverty was a priority. I'm reading with a, a kind of wry amusement these days, I'm reading some stuff from uh, in, in dispatches, <laughs> let's not say anymore, uh, about uh, the fact that you can't get poverty below 10%. That, an academic writing that it's theoretically possible, but it appears you can't get it done because many of the countries in Europe are about 10% of, of their population is living in poverty. That's because they choose to leave it in poverty. It is possible to eliminate it. Um, I had this discussion with the current Thishuk when he took office the first time, and uh, he, he was quite surprised. He seemed quite surprised, and he said to me, you, How would you do it? And I said, I'd set it out for you. And uh, I sent it in to him. And through one of his advisors, as he had suggested, and he never came back to me. And I kind of eventually went after him. I as you would say, stepped him, maybe coming out of yeah. an event. And I said to him, like, what about it? Oh, he said, I gave that to the Department of Finance and they said it wouldn't work. Try that again? <laughs> I gave that to the Department of Finance and they said it wouldn't work. Now there's a real surprise. So what I suggest what I suggest, like, like, give it give their response to us and we'll deal with it. OK, we'll come back, we'll show you how to deal with it. But he never did. The, the issue at the end of the day is you can eliminate poverty if the political will exists. Yeah. The, the numbers that came out uh, last week, uh, the latest numbers on poverty, show poverty rising again. It's up from 595,000 up to 680,000, 680, uh, And a huge increase among older people. Now, this is something that could have been avoided. It's something that we've been predicting because we've been saying for quite a while, government had for a while been going in the right direction and gradually, a bit too slow for my liking, but they were going in the right direction of reducing poverty. Oh, here it goes again. And not alone that, but it's going to continue to go in this direction because of the choices government has made. For example, government keeps talking now that, and if you were to listen to all the PR that they followed, the budget, that followed the budget of 23, uh, 20, 2023, 2023, uh, you'd be convinced that poor people had been fantastic winners, brilliant winners, both in terms of the uh, uh, the budget itself and the, the recent uh, p- additional expenditure that government had in terms of tackling the cost of living. In actual fact, the numbers are quite different. Uh, the, the 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 gap was widened uh, between uh, the rich poor gap, the mm-hmm. amount that they get each each week, widened by. Uh, mm-hmm. Two hundred a year, something of that nature, and but more importantly, the gap between them now is like a thousand a week, a thousand a week, that type of number. So, like they, it's a tragedy that we have not put poverty close to the top of our agenda. It's very much an afterthought. But a lot of PR goes into it. A lot of taxpayers' money is spent running PR programs to tell people what a great job they're doing. And that's the kind of thing that government is at with this one-off payment thing. Uh, they, they give all these one-off payments. So month after month after month, they have another payment coming up. The only problem is you put them all together. First of all, they're, when they're done, they're done. They don't come back. But the second thing is that people on uh, core welfare rates, people on core pension rates, state pension, are poorer in 23 than they were in 2022, and they're poorer in 2023 than they were in 2021. Government has been been allowing them, uh, has been allowing the value of their uh, payment to go down in real terms as the inflation has gone gone ahead.
1: To know what's really happening,
0: subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe.
1: And what about, Sean, I've seen commentators saying recently, and actually I think it was um, Pascal Dunne who said in an interview in the Irish Examiner earlier this week, suggestions that in overall terms the political culture has moved to the left and therefore, one would assume, closer to the concept of equality. What do you say about that?
0: I think there has been progress, I, I, I'm, not, I'm the last person to suggest and I've never suggested that we're not making any progress. For example, a place of progress is that we don't any longer have the huge levels of unemployment we used to have. However, what we do have now is 100,000 people roughly, uh, give or take, uh, who have a job but are living in households in poverty and that's the working poor issue. and. 20 years ago in I was one of my five recommendations was to make tax credits refundable. That is, that basically people in that space, the working poor, could benefit from the full value of the tax credits to which they're entitled. And, like, government has refused to do that ever since. Although it still remains a problem, and that still remains the best solution to that problem. So, working poverty, it the most targeted thing is to make tax credits re- refundable. It's, it, can be done and it can be done for a small proportion of the kinds of money we've been spending on other initiatives that have been
1: hugely wasteful. Tell me one other thing Um, 2009 Corey it became Social Justice Ireland. Was that in response to the Negative um, elements coming out about the church, about historical abuse, etc., all that kind of thing. Was it a rebranding, or was it moving away from it? Or wh- what brought that about?
0: Uh, it wasn't rebranding. Let me let me explain. Yeah. Uh, context is everything, as always. Um, the the reality was that the, the organisation was imploding uh, on the back of the way uh, on the back of the way they were dealing or not dealing, as the case may be, with uh, child
1: abuse. The ch- when you say the organisation, you mean the church? Uh,
0: the church, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, particularly in that, in our context, the Conference of Religious of Ireland, Gorae. Right. So um, if there was to be a justice agenda, if the justice agenda that we had was to continue, then uh, some of the things that we had been talking about for several years but never done, which was to basically take it independent completely because to us it was clear enough that the numbers of religious available for, to work on it and so on, were, were declining and would continue to decline for the foreseeable future. So we need to look at it in a different way. So what we did with the agreement, Bridget Reynolds and myself did, uh, with the agreement of, of Corai was that we would take responsibility for implementing all of the work that the Justice Office had been doing and the just uh, and we would take that that all that core Justice, as we were known at the time, would do, and that we would set up a separate operation, completely independent of religious and church and everything of that. It's like it's basically a standalone organization, and uh, it's run. It's uh, company limited by guarantee. It's got its own board. Uh, almost all the members on the board are lay people. Uh, there, it, it isn't a religious-based organization yes, yeah. or anything of that nature, and it pays its way. No. It has to. It has a staff, uh, many of them well known in the public arena now. Yeah, yeah. Because we've been kind of trying to in, encourage the public or uh, the media to take uh, them as spokespersons, and they have done fair, very well, I think. Uh, and there's several of them there. Three people now who who can uh, uh, advocate uh, very well. Uh, Michelle Murphy, Colette Bennett, and Suzanne Rogers, and lots of people will know them from all sorts of interviews on radio and TV and so on, uh, and on newspapers. And they've done a very, very good job. Now, there's all other people as well uh, working with it, us yeah. and so on. And we have the financing uh, for uh, running that organization. The way we do the financing, we get the, people can join us as members. They can give us support just as gifts or whatever. Um, We get a small amount of uh, funding uh, from religious, very small actually nowadays uh, as a proportion of the whole thing. A few religious congregations would give us a a grant, Uh, but uh, we get um, the grant from from government and then uh, over 60% of the money, more than 60% is coming from research that we do and training that we do, education programs we run and things of that nature.
1: And tell me, Sean, your long experience of going back to even, I suppose, your experience in Africa, but principally when you came back here, and your whole thing, if I could put it this way, and I have observed this certainly in the last 10, 15 years, evidence-based research is is, is the key, and you do that, you do that rigorously, and you set out your style accordingly. And in theory, evidence-based research should be what guides us in terms of public policy, but I think it's fair to say very often they're very selective in which evidence they take, if any, in, in various um, political agendas. Do you see any change from, say, your early years to now, as, as you're coming to the end of your, your, your full-time role, do you see any change in the willingness of governments to go along with evidence-based policy?
0: The interesting thing for me uh, is the con- the way things have changed. There's two things have changed profoundly. There's far more evidence available now. There's far more research. There's lots of organizations do research. There's lots of uh, research done, propagated, promoted, publicized. People are aware of it and so on. That's a big change. Uh, I remember like 40 years ago, you'd be looking around and wondering where, where's is there any research on this place? And I remember when I came back here, first, like, struggling to find any kinds of real serious social analysis of Ireland's economy in particular. Also, a lot of, very little research on the social situation that particularly poor people were living through and so on. That's one change. A lot more research. The other change is that um, government... um, while, while government has picked up a lot of this uh, research, it has chosen to ignore a lot of it as well. And more concerningly for me, uh, there are people in the civil service who don't take the research seriously.
1: Sean, just in the overall context, do you have hope for the future? What gives you hope for the future?
0: I have hope for the future. Uh, I think hope is critical. It's very important. Um I see wonderful people doing wonderful work, and I see extremely committed people, passionate people, people who are passionate about the future of society, passionate about trying to secure well-being for everybody. Recognizing that development, if you like, is not just about economic development. Uh, I, I see the emergence maybe not at the pinnacle of the political process, but further down and certainly across the society, there's a very strong recognition. On the one hand, bad news, Ireland's social contract is broken. But at the same time, recognising that it's fixable. How do we fix it? Basically, the mistake we've made consistently is to prioritise the economy over everything else. That is a mistake. You can't run a decent economy without having decent services and you can't run decent services in a decent economy without having a just taxation system. And it's not just those three. That's the economy, uh, the, the services and the taxation. You also need real participation for people. More and more people are demanding participation in shaping the decisions that affect them. They're not happy with the idea of you just vote once a year and you never here again, that type of idea. They're saying no, they're, they're, they want a participation. An example of that in practice is the public participation networks. There's a public participation network now in every local authority, all 31 local authorities in the country. And there are 17,000 plus organisations signed on there eh, from the community, voluntary, social inclusion and uh, environmental sectors. And they are dealing with policy. They're not just uh, trying to get volunteers and doing meals on wheels. They're... They, their members are involved with that, but the key issue that they're involved with is the development of policy with the local authority now that's a very good manifestation of people wanting to be involved in shaping policy that's fourth and the fifth and fine and for me obviously it has been there forever the issue of sustainability uh, you you and not just environmental sustainability but whatever you're proposing has to be economically sustainable but not just that it has to be socially sustainable will people live in the society you're developing or you're trying to develop, all right? So five things necessary for the social contract to be delivered and they must be done simultaneously. That is the economy, you need a healthy economy, decent services, fair taxation, real participation and sustainability. And you need all five to be dealt with simultaneously and to be dealt with with an equal priority. It is not acceptable to be running uh, the, 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 the sort of world we live in on the basis that, well, if we don't get the economy right, nothing else will work. You know, this kind of thing I've been listening to for the last 50 years. That bottom line, that, that statement simply is looking at one corner of the picture and ignoring the rest. You have to have all five dimensions working simultaneously and in harmony. And then you can ch- deliver real well-being for everybody.
1: Sean, I think it's fair to say it's quite obvious the fire burns as as brightly as ever. Um, I want to thank you for the interview, but I also have to say just in terms of your public role uh, and just stepping back from that, even though you say you're going to continue working. For me, you've always struck me as somebody who was the purveyor of inconvenient truths for successive governments when they wanted to look away and not face up to the reality of what you were presenting before them. And thanks for that. And, and thanks for being with us today. You're more than welcome. Thank you. i also like to thank our engineers, always. Thank you folks for listening. And we'll be back with you very soon. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools
0: interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups.
1: Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are like interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast
0: where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.